0: Host, Whitney Webb. Today, we are going to be wading into the big story in the financial world, and more specifically, the crypto space, by working to make sense of the spectacular implosion of FTX and the mystique behind its uh, 30-year-old billionaire founder, Sam Bankman fried With each passing day, the news about the story gets progressively more insane, with the obvious fraudulent behavior of Bankman fried and his polycule posse becoming ever more apparent. Yet some major outlets like the New York Times and covering the FTX collapse have avoided portraying Bankman-Fried as a criminal or fraud. Uh, They haven't even bothered to call out what he was actually doing at FTX, which is more or less running a massive Ponzi scheme. Yet beyond the brazen criminality, the story has taken on some interesting new dimensions following revelations about Sam Bankman-Fried's connections, particularly those of his family and his ties to a bizarre, somewhat cultish movement of self-styled philanthropist, known as effective altruism. Not only that, but some of these connections involve cozy ties to those leading the Securities and Exchange Commission, as well as a revolving door between congressional staff and one of FTX's subsidiaries. Did Sam Bankman-Fried really accomplish all of this on his own? No, but the narrative is quickly being spun that he conducted all of this fraud, avoided regulatory scrutiny, and amassed billions of dollars of wealth without the help of a network that benefited from and protected his activities. Such a narrative is oddly reminiscent of the mainstream narrative about another brazen financial criminal, Jeffrey Epstein. To help me make sense of this complete hive of financial fuckery and apparent conspiracy, I am joined today by Marty Bent and Mike Krieger. Marty is the founder of tftc.io, a media company focused on Bitcoin beauty and freedom in the digital age. He is also a partner at 1031, a leading investment platform focused exclusively on investing in the Bitcoin ecosystem, and he hosts the Tales from the Crypt or TFTC podcast. Mike formerly worked on Wall Street as an oil and gas uh, general commodities analyst and equity research, and later on a trading desk. He ultimately left in discuss over the state of the industry, can't blame him, and started the website Liberty Blitzkrieg. Though he doesn't blog much anymore, Mike still shares his insights on social media and elsewhere in between homeschooling his four kids and gardening. So, hey guys, thanks for being here today. Welcome to Unlimited Hangout.
1: Hey, Whitney, great to be here. Thank you. It's always a pleasure, Whitney.
0: Well, thanks so much for being here, because we have a lot to get into. So I'm sure by now most people are familiar, at least have heard of FTX and Sam Bankman fried since it's been uh, in the news so much over the past several days. But maybe we should start off giving a summary of uh, of the collapse, exactly um, you know how it happened, uh, what was the lead up to it, and what was FTX, and what did it claim to be doing versus what it was actually doing?
2: Yes, yeah, so I guess <clears throat> I can take that, and we'll start with. I guess we have to start with what was FTX, how did it start? Um, in short, FTX was a cryptocurrency exchange where people could deposit Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and trade those currencies uh, against each other and then trade them with leverage as well. So this was a spot where many individuals uh, and hedge funds in the crypto space would, would come to trade different altcoins and Bitcoin using leverage to try to, to try to make a return uh but ftx spun out of a trading research firm known as alameda and alameda th- their claim to fame uh, was their ability to arbitrage the price of bitcoin between across western and asian markets in around 2018 2019 i mean the origin story and the lore behind alameda that spf would put out there was that they were somehow able to recognize that Bitcoin was trading at, say, $10,000 in the U.S. and $10,100 in Japan. and Apparently, they were able to spin up uh, a bunch of bank accounts across the world and arbitrage that price difference. So they would buy Bitcoin for $10,000 in the U.S. and then sell it for $10,100 in Japan immediately. And they claimed to have been wildly profitable with that particular trade, and they brought it over to South Korea, too. At least that's the story. I'm not sure. Do you buy that story? that story?
0: Because I've heard from people that talked about uh, that we're talking about FTX being fraudulent, basically. In October, I think Mark Cajode, Cajodes or something like that is his name. And he was saying uh, that this origin story doesn't make any sense to him at all. He would have had to have a, like a ton of capital that wasn't his behind him to have made this strategy work.
2: Yes, yeah, so I'm a bit skeptical about it, too. I bet Michael could chime in here about the the nature of uh, the the type of infrastructure that would have to be set up from multiple bank accounts across the world to actually make this trade possible in the first place.
1: Yeah. so um to just chime in, a few things uh, to add there. W- one is that there were some chat releases or or messages recently, I don't know if you two saw, but um from ex former employees talking about how they did make a decent amount of money on that trade somehow. We can get into that uh, the details later and how the effective altruism network um, apparently made all that happen. But these employees claim that it was squandered, that whatever money they made was squandered. So you're still left with this gaping hole of where did all of that initial money come from to launch FTX? And remember that FTX didn't just, you know, sort of launch you know out of a basement or a garage and then slowly you know gain share it it came out of nowhere and we still don't know you know the really the origin of the money where it came from and it absolutely exploded i believe that it started um only a few days after biden announced his um, pres- presidential candidacy um so sometime in 2019 then um but it just came out of nowhere and it very quickly became one of the biggest. So that's bizarre. The one I think, you know, Whitney, we, we've uh, I know you've done so much work on Epstein. But when you first look at him, right, one of the one of the you're looking for the money, you know, sort of where did yeah. the initial kind of big money or or, or sort of in injection come from? I think Wexner was one of the first. Correct me if I'm wrong. In this case, it seems like the only name that I can attach to money early on was this guy, Jan Talon, who is a. Uh, a co-founder of Skype and also an effective altruist. So that's sort mm-hmm. of the first, that's the that's the only significant chunk of money that I've been able to find that that you know surfaces kind of early on in the origin story. It was from it was from that individual.
0: Yeah. So we'll get in the effective altruist stuff a bit later, because that's a real hive to explain because there's a lot of backstory to that. But I guess to um, you know, sum it up briefly here. It seems like a lot of FTX's uh, initial activities and really Sam Bankman-Fried's career from the time he left MIT on uh, was effectively managed by this particular uh, group of effective altruists, which is really um, quite a tight-knit network. And, uh, you know, again, we'll get into that later. So origin story aside, uh, so we, um, we've we talked a little bit about, I guess, what FTX was. Um, so you know, a lot has come out, especially last week about what they were actually doing or rather what they were supposed to be doing, but didn't do. Um, so maybe we could go over that a little bit, um, in terms of, um, you know, just the evidence of excessive fraud and like what, what has been exposed about FTX that's significant on, on the business side.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this, uh, this is dovetails into the thread that was pulled on over the last couple of weeks that. Essentially, uncovered the big massive fraud that was going on. And this revolves around uh, FTX's exchange token, FTT. So, when, uh, so first we'll say there's this big theme in the overarching cryptocurrency space, particularly with exchanges, uh, where they'll essentially launch their own token uh, exchange token and they market that this token will allow users to benefit from the profitability of the exchange. In my mind, this whole token mechanism doesn't make sense from first principles, but it has been trend over the last five to six years, particular, but finance has an exchange token. Crypto.com has an exchange token and FTX has an, ex- had an exchange token as well. And so this is where the unraveling of FTX began. So they had, their FTT token. And the way that these token mechanics typically work is the exchange will pre-mine uh, a bunch of these exchange tokens, in FTX's case, FTT. And what they'll do is they'll hold a line share of the supply off the market on their own balance sheet. And then they'll uh, release a, a small fraction of the free float of the token to retail investors, and they can trade that. And what this Mechanism allows, since they're holding a a lot of supply off the market, it allows them to artificially increase the uh, price of these tokens rather trivially with some wash trading. And so in the case of FTX and FTT, uh, many people believe what they were doing was wash trading via Alameda uh, to to push the price of FTT up significantly high, giving it a lot of value in in a larger market cap. Uh, an artificial market cap, if you will, and so what happened a few weeks ago <clears throat> was uh, CoinDesk released an article of FTX's balance sheet, and it's it basically highlighted that a line share of FTX's balance sheet was their own FTT token, and not actually Bitcoin um, or other more established cryptocurrencies, and. What happened then is that the the large their largest competitor in the space, Binance, uh, their CEO recognized this and basically saw it as an opportunity to take out a competitor. Or uh, he simply saw this is insane that their balance sheet is um, is is predominantly their their own exchange token and not they don't have a significant amount of Bitcoin or cash on their balance sheet. And so, what happened after CZ, the CEO of Binance, saw that, that balance sheet in the CoinDesk article, he came out publicly and announced, uh, we're not comfortable with the the state of FTX, so we're going to dump our FTT tokens. Binance had uh, upwards of $500 million worth of this FTT token. So when CZ came out and publicly signaled that Binance was going to dump their FTT tokens, the price of FTT started to fall significantly because Others saw that, and finance being one of the largest holders, that they're going to sell their FTT tokens. I mean, the price is going to go down, and so uh, others who did not want to get taken out with the tide of that trade decide to follow along with CZ, and so that drove the price of FTT token uh, down below what many are are claiming to be a critical point, which was twenty two dollars. Uh, eventually, it fell down to I believe four four dollars, but when that happened, when CZ started selling uh, and others started selling as well, uh, the price of FTT fell significantly, obviously. And this is what began the unraveling of the giant fraud that was FTX. Um, and so once the price fell below a critical point, um, the market became aware that what FTX was doing is they were giving a large amounts of FTT to Alameda, their trading arm which are supposed to be separate. I think that should be important to note is uh, FTX and Alameda were posturing publicly that they were completely separate entities that uh, had no involvement with each other. But it's become glaringly obvious that they were co-mingling funds and and working very closely with each other. And so when the price of FTT fell, it became known that uh, FTX was giving a bunch of FTT tokens to Alameda. And then Alameda was using those FTT tokens as collateral to take out loans from many other actors in the space, um, loans in Bitcoin and stable coins. And so when the price fell, the collateral with all the loans that uh, Alameda had taken out became essentially worthless and they they became uh, the debt that they had taken out. They they couldn't pay it back. And so they became essentially insolvent overnight. And that's where the cascading effect began.
0: So in, in the aftermath of this and, and them filing for bankruptcy, um, a guy has been put in charge of FTX. Um, and most of the you know people that had previously been in charge of it, including Bankman Freed, of course, are out at this point. Um, but this guy, um, John Ray, right? He was previously brought in to clean up Enron. And he had a bunch of revelations, um, I guess, that he produced in a court filing or elsewhere. Some sort of documentation came out where he was... Basically going over that, you know, this is even worse than Enron in in terms of corporate controls and and some of the stuff he's, he said was just insane. Like they didn't even have a bank account (laughs) and, and like, you know, uh, I mean, loads of stuff that's really just mind-boggling. Uh, do you guys want to go over
1: that for a little bit? Well, I, I wanted to just add some uh, clarification on what Marty was saying as well, because some people listening may get really confused as far as you know, FTT. How could it possibly you know sort of collateralize this gigantic Ponzi scheme? And, um, you know, what is it even right mm-hmm, from what yeah. I, from my reading and maybe, and Mar- Marty can correct me if I'm wrong here, cause I've never traded or had any funds on FTX, but I read that apparently FTX was offering discounts on their, tra- on trading or something like that to customers or users that were, um, using the FTT or holding the FTT token. So that might've been the carrot that was being used because remember the, these, these tokens can, are not equity right? It's not an equity stake in FTX. It's, there's no like ownership of anything that comes along with holding a token. So they have to put out some sort of, you know, rationale for what is this going to do? And I think that's what it was. Are you, are you aware of any, anything like that, Marty, or that, does that sound right? Yeah. And to be clear, I've never traded on FTX or
2: used FTT token, but yeah, that's typically how these exchange tokens work. They try to, um, Basically, give benefits to users of that token on the exchange um, that others who aren't using the token would not get.
1: Right, and so again, that that's sort of a way to 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 tie some sort of utility to it. To to then, that's how the the that's one of the ways that the value can get just crazily inflated because um, users might just choose to hold that token um, on the on the exchange, you know, because there's some some marginal value to it, some some discount or something like that. Yes. Yes
2: and that's actually i believe how fttx originally launched i believe the ftt token was part of an ico that they that they launched to actually fund or market that they were funding the exchange with the ftt ico
0: right so for people that don't know that's ico is initial coin offering yeah yes yeah Okay. I don't know if everyone's up to speed on (laughs) crypto listens to my podcast. You know, I'm certainly not um, you know, a a crypto person myself in terms of being as knowledgeable as you guys about this type of stuff, which is, you know, part of why you are here. (laughs) So uh anyway, to get to get back to the conversation, um, you know, about FTX, and so we can spend more time sort of unpacking a lot of these um, you know, revelations that aren't getting a lot of lip service in in the media, you know, about this whole situation. Um Returning to what I mentioned a minute, a minute ago about the extent of criminality and fraud and how the, the person that's been brought into cleanup, previously brought into cleanup, Enron, says it's the worst, worst thing he's ever seen in his whole career. You know, there was no board, no board meetings, um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, no bank account. Um, so, I mean, if it was this egregious, how and why was nothing done before its collapse?
1: Well, I mean, I'll take this just to start. You know, I I think Marty actually called out SBF publicly on Twitter um, earlier a few times. I think I recall that. You know, I never did, but I've also been very much not um, paying as close attention to a lot of different things over the last year or so. I've been much less active than I was historically. However, I do recall, um, you know, earlier this year, you know, when I saw him on stage with Clinton and Tony Blair at, I believe, it was the Bahamas. <laughs> it's usually Pride. a
0: telling thing.
1: <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but, but I saw this guy. And then also, when I just saw him sort of disparaging Bitcoin, Um, very in in what I thought to be a very snake-like fashion, very publicly calling for regulations. I mean, even someone like me who's not paying that close attention, that definitely um, made, you know, sort of caused me to say, wait a minute, first of all, where did this guy come from? Who is this guy? What is he doing? It felt to me like it was some sort of a op um, or he was somebody's, you know, beard or something, that he was there for some purpose. And I just didn't bother to, Look into it at all. I had no stake in any of this, right? But um, it was always weird to me, like because the talking points that he was using, it was it was almost as if if I was the WEF and I wanted to you know wreck Bitcoin as much as possible, you know I'd be this guy, you know I I just create this guy in a laboratory and put him out there. So that to me was always super bizarre, and I, I think that in some way must tie into the question you're asking, which is. How was this allowed to get so big so fast and go on? And I think the clear answer to that, at least from my perspective, based on what I'm seeing, is that it was in, it was an intentional thing. you know he, he was he was meant to um, he was meant to push forward some sort of quote unquote, elite um narrative and agenda. I think that much is clear. and obviously even more clear now that we, can unpack a lot of these weird connections and webs that we will do. Um, but that that's my take. Um, that, and, and I, and I sort of had that feeling from, you know, when I first saw him, but now it's just becoming too obvious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Marty, you have any thoughts? Yeah. And no, I just echo
2: what Michael said. I mean, Michael mentioned, I've been calling SBF out since July of last year, 2021. And, Again, I haven't been. I, I focus on Bitcoin only. I I really don't trade any of the other cryptocurrencies, and had no use for FTX at all or my involvement in Bitcoin. But uh, I, I would echo what Michael just said. Like the the, the reason I started calling him out uh, in July of last year is because he was going on CNBC and being vaunted as this expert that uh, knew everything about the space and there was one particular interview he conducted with joe kernan uh from cnbc one of their shows and it just became glaringly obvious to me that he really didn't grasp the nature of bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies at all Uh, and the conversation that particular conversation revolved around the consensus mechanisms Uh, that these cryptocurrencies use proof of work and proof of stake. And uh, in that particular interview, he completely mischaracterized the nature of the two. And and it became obvious to me that he didn't understand uh, what these things, how they work or why these different consensus mechanisms work the way they do. And that seemed very fishy to me.
0: Well, you know, what's really crazy too, though, is that it's not just him. Like yeah, the the person that was in charge of the Alameda side of things, uh, Caroline Ellison, uh, who is allegedly like his uh, SBF's ex or current or something girlfriend, some sort of romantic partner. Um, there's videos of her that have resurfaced where she is also like she doesn't know what to say when asked basic questions about the industry that she's, you know, her company supposed to be like, a you know, one of the market leaders of. Uh, just totally clueless about loads of stuff. And then another uh, top executive at FTX, I guess, Ryan Salome, or I'm not sure how you say his last name, but he, um, there was also a a video that surfaced of him from before uh, the collapse. And he's asked about like trading and and crypto and stuff. And he's like, Oh, I can't talk about that. I mean, he's, they're very evasive about, you know, answering really (laughs) basic questions of, of stuff you think they would be knowledgeable about um, for being, you know, such a visible face of, of the crypto industry. Right. And, um, to, to go back to something uh, that, uh, hints at, uh, a bigger network that was, um, I don't, I don't think we quite touched on is that when these guys around, you know, uh, sort of the hype around them, there was this huge marketing campaign that was paid for by some means that involved, involved like very big name people like Tom Brady and Giselle Bunchen, uh, the guy from uh, what's his name, Larry David, the actor. They had like a Super Bowl commercial. They they got their name on the Miami Miami Heat arena, and then that that conference where he where SBF is up speaking with Tony Barr and Bill Clinton. That was a co- crypto conference in the Bahamas that was backed and organized by FTX. I mean, they've been doing a lot of organizing in terms of PR and, but like very flashy and expensive PR and like creating these conferences, but they have no, you know, if you listen to them and what you brought up Marty too, is that they have no, I like actual knowledge when pressed on this stuff. I mean, that's pretty nuts. And if people like you could see this and, and some, I think there were some other people that were also calling them out well before the collapse as well. You know, I mean, if these people could see it, why couldn't, you know, the regulators,
1: and also, here's another thing that you know I think needs to be you know explored further is with all of these campaigns. I I still I'm, it's still not clear how they were paid for. In other words, did Larry David accept FTT? Did Tom Brady and Giselle accept FTT? Was it all paid for in FTT? Can you actually you know sponsor an arena with FTT tokens? I I think that seems unlikely, <laughs> right? Probably for, not for, for sure. Um, Some of it probably was right. But but the rest of it, you know, (laughs) I just don't see a sports team taking FTT tokens for, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. And so then you have to ask yourself, okay, well, it really does seem like this entity had an unlimited budget. And if they're not paying for it with FTT and FTT was the only thing that was really collateralizing this entire Ponzi scheme. Well, where was that unlimited budget coming from? Was it just customer funds? Was it something else? Clearly in the beginning, it was something else. Okay. The money, this money was coming from somewhere. And again, to, to go from zero to the uh, extent of net uh, let's say market share that they eventually had at their peak. That's not, you know, that takes, as we, as we discussed money, it takes money, it takes capital. And it's still not clear to me where that's from. And again, just, just donating fi- you know, even though they donated a lot to to politicians, it's not enough to to do, you know, to sort of have the rise that they had. It was, it felt like they were meant to be, you know, in in this, not in a universal sense, but in a sort of sketchy sense.
0: Yeah, definitely sketchy. Well, there's a couple of things that have sort of uh, arisen relatively recently on the uh, the front of potential collusion with government authorities and regulators. Um, there, for example, is uh, the donations that SBF made, not just to the Democratic Party, but also to members of, of Congress um, that sit on the Financial Services Committee, including Maxine Waters. Um, and another congressman, and those two congressmen are, or congresspeople, I don't know, uh, are the ones that are due to investigate FTX on behalf of the government, which is pretty insane because there's uh, pictures that have resurfaced and videos of Maxine Waters uh, blowing Sam Bankman free to kiss, and, you know, they're very chummy and and huggy (laughs) in a lot of these photos, so, you know, that's convenient to have the people investigating you, uh, like you that much and then on the other side of this there's this uh, apparent connection to Gary Gensler who's head of the SEC or Securities and Exchange Commission.
2: Yes it, it has come to light that there was a particular meeting I believe early this year between Gary Gensler and SBF and the meeting notes the the highlight of the topic of the meeting was something like figuring out a way to give FTX amnesty for breaking securities law. Um, with a certain form of legislation that would get pushed through.
0: And do we know the conclusions of that meeting or what came of it, or that's up in the air?
2: It's up in the air right now, Mm -hmm. but we do know that they certainly met, and uh, the nature of the conversation is public. What exactly was said is not. not.
1: And, And of course, I mean, at this point, maybe it makes sense to just throw out some of those connections that I think everyone's heard by now, but it makes sense to to mention here. I believe which would be that you know Alameda, one of the the key figures in the Alameda collapse, um, Caroline Ellison. Um, interestingly enough, she went to Stanford, where Sam Bankman Fried's both of his parents are law professors at Stanford, so that's where mm-hmm. she went. And then Sam Bankman Fried went to MIT, where um, Caroline Ellison's father is, I believe, the chair of the economics department. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then of course, Gary Gensler was at MIT for a period of time involved with, I believe that MIT's is it digital currency initiative or something like that. So yeah, I mean, it's just a strange, very incestuous, um, some family connections there. And of course there, there's, there comes up Gary Gensler. And then as Marty mentioned that they were working on some sort of a carve out, it seems for FTX. It's, It's certainly worth noting and people can come to their own conclusions about that, but it's certainly interesting.
0: Yeah. And then we have the situation where this uh, legislation, I guess it's in the Senate right now. I'm not really sure which House of Congress is dealing with it, but it was a bill related to regulation of the crypto industry. And FB uh, SBF was very involved in drafting it. And despite everything that's exploded around FTX and this guy's reputation over the past couple of weeks, uh, just a few days ago, they announced they're still going to roll with it. They're not going to make major changes. They're not going to scrap it. They're going to, you know, roll ahead with a a bill that was partially written by a guy behind a massive Ponzi scheme (laughs) to regulate the industry in which he conducted his Ponzi scheme. It seems
1: a little odd. Right, and then you've seen, of course, we've all we've all seen the ma- the mainstream media articles and headlines trying to sort of say. I mean, the narrative that's coalescing around this post, you know, exposure of this Ponzi fraud is, oh, he, you know, what this guy still was J.P. Morgan. I think that was actually a headline. <laughs> like that was you Jim Cramer, wasn't
2: it? <laughs> <laughs> kind of like well, the well, J.P. Yeah, Cramer or?
1: originally called him uh, the the modern day J.P. Morgan, right? Which that's so nuts. Oh uh, yeah, but but what I'm saying is, that then there was an article. There was an article in the New York Times that said, despite what happened, I'm saying after he blew up, he's still like a J.P. Morgan. <laughs> so it's very it's very bizarre. Um, it, it's and this is where I don't I have conflicting thoughts on this one. I, I don't know if Marty would want to expand and, and sort of his his views is, is he's more in the weeds of of this industry or than I am. Um, but I go back and forth with, you know. He was he was like this nuclear bomb that was meant to detonate in inside of this industry and sort of um, cause so much damage that they could do whatever they wanted with regulation, sort of like the uh, equivalent of 9/11 in this industry. But then on the, on the flip side, it it feels to me like it, the plug was pulled early, you know that that you, this whole thing wasn't supposed to go down just yet, and um, and so it blew up on a timeline that I guess maybe, perhaps his handlers or others were not quite ready for, and that's how they're sort of responding, right? So I don't know. I, I I'm very conflicted on that on that view. I, I clear. I definitely think this was, uh, you know, this entire thing was created intentionally for some major purpose, but I'm just not, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not clear in my own head as to whether he was supposed to blow up now or later. Do, do you have any thoughts on that, Marty? I
2: think, I think the fraud was definitely uncovered way earlier yeah. than, than they expected. Um, it just seeing how quickly it all unraveled and, uh, like you mentioned, the, the scramble to tighten up the narrative from the media's perspective immediately after uh does seem a bit fishy uh and i i do believe that they were not ready for this fraud to be unraveled at this particular point in time um and and, and, yeah in the con and uh and to speak to sbf and ftx being assets of the state or some um some group that that had an agenda I, i certainly think that is The case, too, because when you add up all the inconsistencies around uh, Alameda and FTX's history, and again, you mentioned it earlier, Michael, but just the marketing budget alone, the fact that they were able to buy the naming rights to two stadiums, to have Super Bowl commercials, to have the FTX patch on the MLB Empire's uh, uniforms throughout the season, they they were sponsoring F1 as well and had a, a large billboard campaign. It never really made sense to me that they they had the marketing budget that they did. Um, and, and like you mentioned, Michael, it seemed like via that marketing budget, that, uh, the powers that be, whoever they are behind Alameda and FTX were trying to um, imbue a sense of legitimacy that that simply wasn't there.
0: Yeah, I mean it's like pure hype at this point. What what they were attempting to you know get people hooked on. It's I don't know. I I mean it's just a totally insane story. So in terms of motives for collusion there between FTX and the state or the people ultimately backing this enterprise, um, do you think crypto regulation like uh you know forcing that through was was meant to be the main motive from the off, or do we see any other sort of um you know, reasons behind, uh, you know, the, the promotion of FTX and SBF at this particular time, aside from that?
2: Yes. I mean, I think that's something Bitcoiners have been preparing for for some time. And it seems that SBF and FTX were the, the chosen vessel to bring about uh, what we've been warning about, which is overbearing regulation that would make it significantly harder for individuals to use Bitcoin. Um, uh, the way it was meant to be used in a peer-to-peer fashion. Uh, and it seemed like SBF and FTX were lobbying particularly for stringent control around how individuals interact with, with cryptocurrencies. And what he was pushing for is that um, if, if people are using these things, they should be if they should be using them uh, via highly regulated entities like FTX. Uh, and and not more free market
1: options. Yeah. And I think also um, for a long time, we've been aware, you know, people that are in the Bitcoin world that one of the most effective attack vectors for, you know, undermining, let's say Bitcoin is a, you know, the narrative, the big narrative, the narrative push. And clearly FTX, as I said earlier, he was like a lab created, you know, um, entity that would eventually morph, um, you know this the cryptocurrency industry into you know uh, more of like a Cbdc you know the, the fiat world yeah um you know sort of a thing so that, that to me, and also let's not forget that he, one of his big things was climate change, right? Now, it could, because he's this, you know, supposedly this like incredibly selfless guy who just wants to make the world better. Yeah, we'll get into that later. <laughs> right. But that, that right there, it's, it's a clever way to put the seed into Bitcoin is a problem, you know, because oh, yeah. they'll, they'll mm-hmm. go into the whole mining stuff. And that's been an attack vector for a long time. And it's certainly ramping up now. And so he was like a perfect kind of guy to be in there, you know, wildly successful, one of the biggest exchanges. He's he's connected with everyone. Oh, look how he cares about, you know, he cares about saving the world. And if this wonderful messiah of crypto, um, you know, points out how bad and evil Bitcoin is in particular, that that can go a long way into infecting the minds of, you know, let's just say the average person. And especially regulators, so I, I definitely think that was um, part of part of what was going on here for sure.
0: Yeah. So I think one angle that I haven't seen talked about very much, but I think is very telling to the overall purpose behind this op of FTX and Sam Bankman Freed, is related to his his desire. I forget where I read this. It might have been that deleted Sequoia Capital article. He he talked about. In some past interview, his desire to have FDX become the everything app. And to me, that's a very telling term, right? Because we've also heard Elon Musk, right? When he bought Twitter, talk about turning Twitter into the everything app, modeling it after WeChat. And so in China, WeChat, right, is... um, The most dominant app, you use it for uh, everything. It's, you know, it's social media, but it's also tied up with your finances. It's tied up with all different aspects of your life, not unlike the digital ID system that's being piloted in in different areas of of the West right now and as part of this broader You know, control grid of which the central bank digital currency or CBDC is planned to be part. And that's why I think it's interesting US SBF, right? He in FTX, they're having like this crypto conference down where they're based in the Bahamas and they have someone like Tony Blair come down, who's a huge proponent of this system going back decades. Um, and, and is currently you know through his uh ngo i forget what it's called like the blair institute for global change or some crap like that uh, has been pushing really hard for digital ids more than ever and so you know you the everything app is is definitely you know the model that a lot of you know the people pushing this type of technocratic agenda are looking uh, to sort of segue it uses a segue for people into this particular control system you know oh look how convenient this app app is and sort of sell it that way and he seemed to have had the backing to be the everything app and as we'll talk about later you know even Elon Musk has some sort of weird intersections with the movement behind SBF this effective altruist movement uh to varying degrees and it's just uh I think that's sort of pretty telling if true that you know um he well not it is true that SBF said that that was his ambition for FTX to have it be the everything app but he had a lot of Prominent, you know, venture capital funds and 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 other very powerful people, you know, the DNC, even I guess, um, you know, very much behind him, or he was at least heavily cultivating him, very much positioning FTX to become that dominant everything app and sort of usher in this new paradigm of money, um, you know, as they're trying to to get the
1: CBDCs off the ground. Yeah, I, I just to quickly add to that, I, I do think again, it it feels without a doubt that SBF and FTX were you know meant to be some sort of a bridge, and that's why I think Marty said that the you know they blew up sooner than they were supposed to. Yeah, um, he mm-hmm. seems like that was not you know what I mean. They hadn't finished that yet. <laughs> it was it was, there was more to be done, to to transition, um, uh, this the, the maybe the, maybe the world you know into into a, a new way of thinking with new regulations. Yeah and trap them and that's where the ftx budget comes came into effect again like how did it grow that fast yeah
0: so this kind of makes me wonder too if you know maybe the people that helped pull the plug on SBF and ftx uh they themselves wanted to be the everything app right and so they're sort of like infighting over who gets to like control that because obviously you know if you get to be the person that runs and gets all the data from that like you're really securing your position um in, in the future, if this, you know, technocracy really takes off and takes hold, which, you know, of course, we hope it does not, but these people are planning, you know, for it, obviously. So if you can have be the person in charge of that, you know, app, that's like ultimate power in this, in this type of society uh, into which we're being ushered in. So it would make sense to me to have different factions trying to duke it out for who's going to get to be the, um, you know, have have that power and have that data over people's lives.
1: Yeah. And it could even be this, you know, some elements of the state itself, you know, in the sense that yeah. they can come in and say, we'll see Yeah, we still need an everything app, but we can't have these rogue, crazy, you know, capitalists do it. We need to, you know, we need, it needs to be government run or um, the UN. They're not giving up on, you know, <laughs> this, this, this agenda. It's, 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 if anything more like, oh, well he just didn't, do, you know, it hasn't been tried. It hasn't, hasn't been done properly.
0: Yeah, but every time these days I, I hear someone talk about the everything app, I definitely like pay attention because that's part of where this agenda is going. I think that's how they're going to get people, try to get people hooked on it. And maybe what was they were going to do here was try and make, you know, promote FTX, create this everything app, get a bunch of people on it. And then, you know, uh, as other economic stuff unravels and it's easier to blame that, you mm-hmm. know, for the fraud that was already going on at FTX that was exposed early. Right. And then sort of be like, oh, well, how convenient we have all this infrastructure here and we can just replace, you know, our crappy FTT token with, I don't know, the digital dollar or USDC or something like that. You know, it's it's
2: really interesting that we're talking about this everything app and the FTX blow up happened. And then only a few days after the blow up happened, uh, the Fed announces that they're piloting a digital dollar campaign with a bunch of the banks here in the United States. So maybe that's an opportunity to say, hey. This crazy kid in the Bahamas can't run this app. Maybe maybe the Federal Reserve and our consortium of banks needs to.
1: Did you see I I just want we can go into this more later, but there were messages released between McCaskill and Elon Musk where he was trying Mm -hmm. to push SBF into being uh, going in with Musk to buy Twitter. So that's very interesting as well. Um, wow yeah, yeah well yeah, I think we'll
0: the, be getting to yeah exactly we'll to get the to that effect <laughs> of altruist and and EA pretty soon here but I think before we do that we've we've brought up a couple of times this uh these narratives being pushed about sbF both before and after the collapse and we've already talked about a bit what it seems like he was poss- possibly uh being groomed for and some of the other things here we talked about the climate connection um But we also so first off, I want to talk about just briefly some of the insane narratives that are coming about mainstream media, not just about Sam Bankman-Fried, but also like Caroline Ellison and some of the other (laughs) big names here, because, I mean, they're pretty insane. And I also after that want to talk about um, some of just briefly some of his family connections, uh, his parents and his, his brother Um, Before we get into uh, effective altruism and William McCaskill. So to start off on that, I would definitely like to point out that Forbes had this insane article about Caroline Ellison, who again, we've mentioned a few times was in charge of this um, Alameda uh, side of FTX. Uh, the trading firm and uh, didn't know very much about (laughs) trading at all. And when asked if, you know, she could, you know, her advice about like bad trades or anything like that, she couldn't like recall details of any relevant trade she'd ever made. that fit Like the, I don't know. I mean, it's really crazy. A lot of these clips are going, um, you know, around Twitter and, and in social media right now, but this Forbes article framed her as among other things, a darling of the alt-right. (laughs) Uh, is the narrative being out supposedly because like Curtis uh, some Curtis Yarvin followers have created a cult about her called like Queen they call her Queen Carolyn and this is the type of stuff that they're trying to focus on instead of like the obvious fraud and uh, some of the other connections like her father's uh, apparent connection that you mentioned you guys mentioned earlier to, to Gary Gensler among other things. And then you have the New York times covering this and they don't, they're talking about Sam Bankman free. They don't mention uh, fraud at all. They're basically like, Oh, these are millennial kids that were just totally out of their depth. And you know, the more evidence that comes out, especially from the guy who's in charge of FTX now and trying to clean up the mess. It's like, it definitely seems like that cannot possibly have been. So why is mainstream media rolling with this narrative? That's just so, uh, divorced from reality.
2: Yeah, the the alt right article that Forbes wrote. If you actually like dig into the the roots of of that narrative, uh, the the author of that article DM'd somebody who was associated with Herbit, which is the project that Curtis Yarvin started and has since left. But, but it, it's pretty obvious that the the individual was trolling her. Like, hey, yeah, we call her Queen Caroline here, and. She took that and ran with it in in the Forbes article. Uh, again, it's (laughs) all in an attempt to distract from the overt fraud and uh, the weird connections. It's been
0: happening a lot, though, just in the past few days, like a big playing up of sort of these salacious bits that have popped up with the story it's it's very it's very much what was done with jeffrey epstein right just focus on the salacious bits that grab people's attention and ignore like a lot of the actual crimes that aren't being prosecuted at all you know yeah um i mean i don't know like bernie Madoff, when he got exposed for fraud wasn't he like arrested immediately and Mm -hmm. you know sam bankman freed caroline ellison ryan salomon all these other guys nothing's happened to them
1: they're just let's wait and see right which again goes back to, to this 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 overwhelming feeling that you know these this entity and what it was supposed to achieve um it got you know it got cut short in in some way that's bothersome to people that um essentially have the ability to frame the, the mainstream narrative you know one one thing that is is very uh, Interesting that you pointed out about Caroline, you know, to the point that, you know, is she acting when she just acts this clueless? And it doesn't seem like she is, you know, it seems seems like she's that clueless. Um, But if you really think about it, if this whole thing was um, never meant to be a serious uh, exchange, It was meant for something else. Then it sort of makes sense to have someone like Caroline there because she's never gonna, you know, she's never gonna realize how 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 messed up things are, even that she's potentially being used. She's she's someone that actually knows what they're doing or has experience is gonna go in there and in two seconds just be like, "What? I'm out of here," you know. So she was actually in some ways perfect for for her position. You know, she she thought she was special and super smart and you know destined to be this queen of trading and. You know, I think that 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 in, in itself maybe allowed this to go on a little bit longer. The fact that she actually just, you know, had no idea what was going on or where the money was coming from or anything, but sort of enjoyed the ride. That's what it seems like to me. I
2: think it is important to note too that Caroline wasn't always the CEO of Alameda. There's a gentleman by the name of Sam Trabuco, who was the CEO until earlier this year, and he left. Um, leaving her in charge, they might have been co CEOs, but there was another individual who was CEO of Alameda, or at least co CEO, for the um, for the uh, for like a, a large uh, amount of time uh, since Alameda was launched, and that's Sam Trabuco.
1: Right, and a few people, I believe, not just him, but I think there were several people that sort of got out of Alameda um, and FTX as well. Mm-hmm. Like a few months before, you know, so sort of like yeah. right before, so that that probably um, is worthy of some more investigation from people as well, and and I think Tabuco was yeah, in that in that in that camp, like he left like shortly before it all blew up.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so to end this this bit of it, so post collapse, it's pretty obvious that the mainstream media is sort of stepping in to manage the reputation of SBF. And this is weird to me because, like, when Epstein got outed, you know, and and comparing, like, the similarities there, there was agreement across the board that he's a bad guy and a criminal, right? And it was just, like, you know, they're covering up the fact that he had a lot of supporters and a support network. But with SBF, they're just being, like, oh, forgive him for he was too young to know what he was doing. You know, there's nothing about, like, he was a brazen criminal and blah, 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 and let's all distance ourselves from him now it's a, you know, a very different strategy. And so I'm one, I mean, I don't know, it makes you think maybe we should look at his family a little more. (laughs) I guess maybe, you know, there's some other connection there that might be helping him at this point with mainstream media or even beyond that. I mean, it's really hard to know, but it's definitely um, uh, bizarre that they're covering for him this extensively because it is, you know, Pretty extensive.
1: Should should we just mention, I don't know if you're planning on doing it later, but mention his his parents real quick and sort of
2: Yeah, yeah. Let, let, let's go.
1: go yeah. For it. So there's so on his side, right? There's um this is well known, but we should put it here. Uh his mother, Barbara Freed, um, is uh a Stanford professor, as is his dad, uh jo- Joseph Freed. Um, both Stanford professors. She is part of an organization called Mind the Gap, which is concerned with raising money from Silicon Valley wealthy people to Democrats. So there's that. Um, and his dad is an interesting figure that I haven't looked into too much, but the reason I want to mention him is because he seems like he had some in, like serious involvement with FTX. Like he wasn't just this. I'm the father of SBS. He did. He, yeah, he was. He was involved. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've got this Stanford law professor, father, who also was involved with um, tax legislation in the United States. I I believe one of Elizabeth Warren's proposed um, tax bills. She actually um, celebrated the endorsement of Joseph Bankman of, of the legislation. So that's you know, this is this is a this is a real figure out here. And again, he he was he's he's been seen in the bahamas with S- sbf and I, I don't know if it's regulators or other of these celebrities but th- but he was also reportedly to be there now as they're winding it down the dad yeah so, so here's
0: now. so he's an expert on tax policy and securities which according to the sec pretty much all the crypto that was being traded by ftx they classify as a security Except for Bitcoin, I guess, which they, uh, Gary Gensler said they're gonna view as a commodity. Uh, But if you look at his CV on Stanford, it has like selected publications, a lot of focus on tax shelters. So I'll just read off a couple that are here Uh, Modeling the Tax Shelter World, Substitutes for Insider Trading. the, in academics view of the tax shelter battle, has California broken the tax shelter legislative log jam? Uh, you know, these are some of the things that he has written about uh, relatively recently, in, according to his CV. Just, you know, worth pointing that out because, you know, Bahamas, the Caribbean in general, um, you know, tend to be used very extensively in the offshore banking system.
1: Yep. And then, uh, of course, his aunt as well. Um, Linda Fried. she is a, I think she's the head of a a health department at a university, but she's also a, you know, part of the WEF, um, not, not just a picture on the WEF, but she's like formally involved with the WEF. So yeah, she's in
0: charge of some, I think the council on aging or something like that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's right.
1: So, you know, again, I mean, this, this guy is just, he's just hooked up, um, all over the place and that's just this one guy. So Yeah.
0: So th- there's also his brother and we might get to him here in a second when we talk about the effect of altruist uh, movement because of the pandemic funding stuff.
1: Guarding against pandemics. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So um, anyway, and I think he worked for Chuck Schumer as well, if I'm not mistaken, if that's the uh, senator that his brother was working for at one point. Yeah. Anyway, um, so I think now it's probably time to get into something um, I think all of us are really interested in exploring on on this podcast, uh, which is uh, the people that are effectively behind SBF, which is this, this effective altruist movement, which is ostensibly led by William McCaskill. But if you look around, there's really supposed to be three uh you know, creators or co-founders of this movement. So there's William McCaskill, there's a guy named Toby Ord and then there's a, a an Australian guy named uh, Peter Singer. So I guess maybe we should start off and say what effective what the effective altruist uh, idea ethos is supposed to be. And how William McCaskill, the, you know, the face of it that's put out everywhere, because Toby Ord and Peter Singer aren't as much the face of this movement as as McCaskill is, um, should talk about a little bit about how, you know, it's, it's quite apparent if you look at uh, his activities in relation to SBF, that he recruited SBF out of undergrad at MIT and basically guided his whole career, including through FTX and then had a role at FTX as well. So let's get into it.
1: Okay, I'll start here. Um, this is the area that I've been focused on the most because when I when I sort of ask myself two questions, you know, so what, where what do all roads lead back to? Number one, and what is the aspect of the story that the media is focusing the least on? Uh, comes to effective altruism or EA, um, which I'll try to summarize as 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 good as as well as possible. Um, I have tons of thoughts on this, but essentially, if you if the social credit score world had a philosophy, it would be effective altruism, essentially. Uh, in a nutshell, uh, it's concerned with at least ostensibly doing the most good for the most amount of people. but in in practice, I think where this sort of um, forks from just all sorts of different philosophies that have been around forever is that these this this network or this organization is is, obsessed with um, a technocratic approach to it. So in other words, it's almost as if, if you wanted to take the idea of doing good or being an ethical person and then turn it into a hard science. And that's where it gets very dangerous because what these people claim is essentially that by using technology and research, you can determine what the most good is in the world. And so it really it starts off on an individual level. It sounds fine, right? It starts off with, "Oh, um, if I don't have this beer tonight, and I can, you know, put that five dollars toward, you know, uh, mosquito nets in Africa, that's a moral choice. You know, I should make that choice every time, which is fine, right? I mean, if you want to have that, if you want to make that decision on an individual basis, that's fine. But very quickly. It, it devolves into, you know, which life is worth more than another, you know, is, is it, is it worth letting yeah. one life go in your neighborhood to save five, you know, on another continent? And so, and so very, and, and by the way, they, they, they claim and they think that you can have a, like a hard science around this, that you can ass- essentially figure out using a computer and data, um, what the right choice for everyone is. At any yeah, and who's so
0: worth more who gets to live and who gets mm-hmm. to die ultimately is what exactly. it, it sort of boils down to. Oh, and and just, just to interrupt you really quickly, yeah. uh, Peter Singer, who's William McCaskill's mentor um, and one of the founding guys here uh, was very controversial. I think in the early nineties in the U S because he argued in favor of infanticide that it would, it was okay to kill a baby as long as it was like under a month old uh, based on his metrics about like what constitutes a human, which was all based around preferences so if a baby doesn't show preferences, you can just kill it.
1: Yeah, basically. And and, and what happens too is it's interesting. It just goes to show how completely um, absurd this philosophy gets when you yeah. when you when you keep when you go beyond a couple of steps from the individual how absurd it gets. You have some factions of EA that argue um, that uh, life in the developing world is worth more than a life in the developed world. And then you have the, another faction that's saying, no, no, you actually need to, you know, a, a life in the developed world is worth much more than the developing world. So again, this this goes right back to um, the, the idea that a technocratic group using technology will be able to, to command the ethical choices of everybody or should be able to. And And when you think about it, this is absolutely, right, the, the end goal for the WEF, for all of these, like, nefarious characters, the, the, the direction they're trying to push us in, right? Because historically, you know, if you, look at, if you look at sort of how we think about human behavior, we think of there's certain things you really shouldn't do, like thou shall not kill, things like that. And as long as you avoid those things, you know, you're, you're free to kind of live your life. Th- this effective altruism philosophy is the, is the almost the exact opposite. It's all about telling people what they need to do as opposed to do what they can't do. So again, back to this is how, why it's so dangerous because if this gets foothold in the halls of power, which clearly is the intent, it's it's it, there's no step from that to the social credit system. If people are convinced that a social credit system can spit out you know what you need to do, then you need to do that. And if you don't, you're a bad person because the computer said so.
0: Yeah, it definitely has a lot of uh, issues with it to say the very least, but it's increasingly looking like, at least in the case of SBF, who was poster child for it in terms of like, look at this guy that was originally an effective altruist and made this uh, pact to get ultra rich and then use, give away a bunch of his money for quote unquote good. But, you know, a lot of that, um, that movement and earlier iterations in the quote-unquote philanthropic world, you know, there's been this effort to um, a claim that impact investing and in philanthropy are analogous or that altruism is impact investing and, like, blurring uh, the lines between what those mean, basically. So, you know, a lot of, you know, this supposedly altruistic behavior, once you have a bunch of money, it's basically, um, it's not exactly altruism as most people would would care to define it or I yeah. think the average person would define it, or even the term philanthropy. It's not really that, but it was definitely built up a lot in the case of SBF. And you have this now-deleted Sequoia Capital article. That's I mean, it's totally insane. You have this guy interviewing SBF. SBF isn't even paying attention to him, really, because he's playing a video game and not even looking at the guy, why the guy's interviewing him. And then the the journalist is just fawning over him. And then a few lines after describing how this guy just like, doesn't even bother to like look him in the eye starts praising him and being like i really think he is as selfless as everyone <laughs> claims i can't shake this feeling that he's just the selfless christ figure um and and then now sbf apparently i think in this vox article or this recent interview post collapse has basically said yeah i, I was kind of faking a lot of this altruism stuff so the question yeah. is how many of these other people are faking the altruism stuff and what else is going on in
2: this movement. Well, well, considering the uh, the connections that that particular Vox journalist has with the EA movement, and yeah, it's um, part of it. The tenor the tenor of that article, or some people that believe that that was like an overt attempt to have SBF distance himself from the EA movement uh, to make them look a little better, to seem like this was just one bad apple that really didn't believe it. Um, but I think uh, on In the overarching discussion about effective altruism, I think it is really important to hone in on this particular detail of effective altruism, which is essentially an extension of utilitarianism, uh, which Peter Singer is is the founder of that philosophical belief or school of thought. Uh, I think the iteration of effective altruism really focuses on uh, accumulating as much wealth as possible to dedicate to these causes that they deem worthy uh, over others. So I think that's the the iteration on utilitarianism that effective altruism brings. Again, you mentioned it, the impact investing, Whitney, is these people want to get as rich as possible and use a lion's share of their funds to bring about what they deem to be the most virtuous uh, on the planet. And that, and that again, is uh, very elitist, very technocratic. and I believe that is how McCaskill positions effective altruism. It's like, hey, we believe that the planet is going to have 8 trillion people uh, at some point in the future. And so we have to think of those 8 trillion future humans and uh, to make them as comfortable and well off as possible, we may need to make some sacrifices today with the people living on the planet right now.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about McCaskill for a second and uh, how he views altruism. So I guess before we get into McCaskill specifically, it's worth pointing out that if you look at a lot of these uh, organizations in the EA movement, um, if you like, look at their finances and who they're making grants to, ostensibly altruistic grants, um, there's a lot of money passing around between all these different groups, either tied to McAskill or tied to people uh, that are, you know, part of the close knit uh, power structure of this movement. You know, they're making uh, grants to one, and then that one's making grants back to the, the, the people that gave the grant to them. And it's like a very circular movement of, of money. Which is, uh, you know, for a lot of other people would look sort of like not so much like altruism, but more like um, you're moving money around within your, uh, you know, own movement. That's a good way to cover up money laundering, which is yeah. something FTX has been accused of of enabling. Um, yeah. Anything you guys want to say on, on that front before we get into McCaskill himself and who he is?
2: I mean, as it pertains to FTX, it seems like they had a very similar model because um, they had 134 shell companies. Uh, as well, and to essentially disguise the movement of funds um, from FTX Alameda and their other associated uh, subsidiaries.
1: Yeah, and and you know, in that in the Vox article you mentioned, Whitney, um, which was written by another EA adherent, who's Dylan Matthews, um, and it's in fact you know sponsored by Future Perfect, which is a, a project within Vox that is specifically effective altruistic. It's super weird. He actually throws out some figures as far as the the money at the disposal of this network, and it's anywhere from twenty six to forty something billion. And you know this isn't just stuff you know money that's sitting in like EA bank accounts. But what he's doing is he's taking some of the um, high profile figures that are um, publicly associated with this with this network, and and taking their net worths into account, which is which is probably fair because a lot of these people are claiming that they're going to give away most of their money. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to, to go off on uh sort of McCaskill and how he, <laughs> how he yeah, groomed, go for uh, it SBF. If you don't tell us, no tell
0: mind. us who William McCaskill is, or at least his cover story, I guess, and uh, his relationship with SBF.
1: Yeah, I think, um. If anything that I want to get across on my end on this on this podcast is William McCaskill, or you know his his birth name apparently it was William Crouch, um, and he took the name McCaskill from one from his ex wife or something. It's it's bizarre to his begin
0: ex-wife's with. His Ex wife's grandmother.
1: <laughs> oh, ex wife's grandmother. Right. So his his surname now is actually his ex wife's grandmother's name, um, not even his original name. So that's that's interesting to begin with. But um, this is this is a guy who. The more you look into them, the more there's clearly stuff there that we don't know. So, SBF was this physics major at MIT, and he hadn't even graduated when, in I believe 2013, it was right around there, um, William McCaskill was at MIT giving a talk and was um, introduced to SBF somehow. And in that introduction, McCaskill immediately apparently. was, you know, enthralled by the sky and picked him out specifically as an individual to, I mean, there's no other way to put it, to to groom. Um, he, then this is, by the way, all of this is coming from that deleted Sequoia article. So I'm not inventing any of this. This is exactly- Well, it's also in the New Yorker piece on McCaskill and effective altruism. Yes, yes. So, so, so McCaskill, you know, essentially pick, plucks this guy out of MIT, hasn't even graduated. And in the conversations with SBF, apparently convinced SBF that the best thing SBF could do for the world is to make as much money as possible and then you know fund EA causes. And then the interesting thing is SBF hadn't even interned at Jane Street Capital yet, but McCaskill is the one that suggested Jane Street the hedge fund, the New York hedge fund, where a Mm -hmm. lot of these, you know, Alameda FTX people uh, interned for a period of time. A lot of them, a lot of
0: the FTX and Alameda people have uh, overlapping ties to Jane Street and effective altruism. The majority, it turns out, have overlaps with both. So that's pretty
1: interesting. Anyway, continue. Yeah. Caroline, of course, was at Jane Street for a period. That's where she met FBF and also um, Gabe. Bankman-Fried, uh, um, Sam's brother, I believe, also uh, worked at Chain Street for a short period of time. So so that's weird. Okay. so, So I worked on Wall Street, right? I mean, I was very deep in the hedge fund industry and all that stuff. I didn't work at the hedge fund industry, but they were clients. And for a PhD philosophy professor, young at Oxford, to for the first thought in his mind upon meeting this guy at MIT, Sam Bankman-Fried, oh, you need to work at Jane Street. That to me was one of the biggest red flags I've seen because that's a very bizarre connection. The physics major, yeah, right. He was a physics uh, SPF was a physics major. That's a very bizarre connection. So first of all, not only does McCaskill pick this guy out of out of the out of the crowd at MIT. He then convinces him that he needs to make as much money as possible. And then he and then he suggests, hey, you should go intern at Jane Street. So weird. I, I cannot come up with a uh, a normal explanation for that sequence. Yeah, it.
0: there definitely isn't. And I think even <laughs> after that, let, let's let point out, too, that while SBF is at Jane Street, the McCaskill connection continues and he's involved, I think, also in guiding um, SBF after he leaves Jane Street as
1: mm-hmm. well, which leads to the creation of Alameda and FTX right. so so, on this front, again, EA effective altruism and William McCaskill are all over the entire origin story of FBF, like at least the one we we know of so so SBF works at Jane Street for a period of time and then leaves, and then he moves back out to San Francisco. you know he's he's he was born in that area. And at this point, uh, he doesn't have a job. And McCaskill offers, and this is from the Sequoia article, McCaskill offers him a job at the Center for Effective Altruism at that point. Now, I don't, it's not clear whether SBF took that or not, but he was, it was offered to him. So there's McCaskill again in San Francisco offering this guy a job. Shortly after that is when the whole arbitrage trade supposedly happened. And interestingly enough, as we discussed earlier, this was an, this was an ARB trade that was, the, the, I guess, the, the arbitrage opportunity was well known, right? That the, the price of Bitcoin was trading at a significant premium in Korea and Japan. And nobody really was able to make a lot of money out of it because you needed bank accounts you know, in various jurisdictions. You need to be able to move money around, right? Something that you, know, you need to be connected, essentially very connected to pull off. And the... Person uh, apparently it was a grad student in Japan who helped make this trade happen for SBF was also in the EA effective altruist network. So SBF was somehow connected to another EA in Japan who allowed who let him use the bank account. Exactly, yeah. who let him use the bank account? So again, who, who even put SBF in touch with this guy to know about the arb trade? What, well, well, You know, I suspect that some, you know, again, like some, some hand back there in that network. Tipped off SBF and said, Hey, by the way, there's this big trade. Oh, by the way, this guy can help you with bank accounts in Japan. It's all weird. And then when SBF wants to raise more money to apparently uh, continue to exploit the ARB or for other reasons, he taps the EA network once again. And this guy, John Tallinn, who is a co founder of Skype, uh, apparently puts together either it was all his own money or a group of EA money, 50 million to give to SBF. And supposedly from that, right, initial injection and the ARP trade, FTX is born. And I would like to point out that even in the Sequoia article, um, I think it was uh, Nishad Singh, he, he explicitly states that none of it could have happened without EA, none of it. So, you know, objectively, the effective altruism network, a, <laughs> a supposedly some sort of uh, philosophy from Oxford uh is able to create Alameda and FTX. The the entire origin story, every single piece of it, uh leads back to to William McCaskill yeah. and EA. Every single I think
0: I think even the part where uh SBF decides to leave Jane Street per the Sequoia article, it's because of a moral dilemma he has because of his EA philosophy, which now he's a he's told these Vox people was bonk, that he doesn't actually care about that philosophy it was just like a front
1: right Right, because he wasn't making because he wasn't making enough at jane so he needed to make more to save the world which by the way i want to point out and i think everyone should uh google this and look look at the pictures associated with it um just to show you how 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 ea itself i believe is a front Um, it's no i don't think any of the higher ups in this movement believe any of it because if you read that new Yorker article it begins with william mccaskill um, being so frugal that he wouldn't have beers with his friends because he could be saving, you know, the poor kids in Africa, right. With, with his beer money. And then, you know, a few fast forward a few years later and the center for effective altruism has, has purchased one of the most, um, exquisite and, um, celebrated private residences in all of the UK called Whiteham Abbey, which is outside of Oxford. It's a 1480s, uh, essentially looks like a castle. And so you go from a guy who claims he won't eat a chicken or have a beer because he could be saving the world to his center um Buying Being at one of the most expensive, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> private so, residences well, in all of
0: Britain, that right, is quite so, a so, jump, isn't it?
1: Right. So the point that I'm trying to make is that this whole thing, and 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 I don't want to disparage, you know, like you know, your useful idiot who comes out of college and thinks, wow, this is this is so good, like this is idealistic, right? The, the rank and file that associated with EA are are just they they really are they believe it, but I'm I'm saying there's there, all indications point to the people who are actually you know, at this point in charge of billions, um, do not believe any of of, of it. And it, it, their, their, their deeds show that.
0: Yeah, one angle of EA I think is interesting is this, you know, the same utilitarian ideology, right? In theory, you know, the ends justify the means. And this is said in other pieces that talk about the EA movement. So in theory, you know, you could justify to yourself Running a giant Ponzi scheme and and you know stealing a bunch of people's money because you know how to spend it better than they do for you know
1: greatest impact
0: for good right
1: yeah I, I mean, mean that's this, sort of
0: part this, of this philosophy.
1: This is this is precisely why it's such a dangerous philosophy and the fact that it's it in has billions tens of billions at its its disposal and is influencing pol- you know politics. Remember SBF funded. A lot of his donations were actually he he funded this one person who was running an EA in Oregon in the primary. He was trying to get that person elected, who was an effective altruist. Um, th- this philosophy, very very clearly, can justify anything, and in fact it it does. And one of the areas that I think you've been interested in is the fact that it's it's shifted over time, of course, to long termism is what they call it. Uh, EA that's like the 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 thing that SBF was also very interested in. Um, and <laughs> as Marty mentioned, this is, uh, I mean, it's like mental masturbation to the extreme they, they, they believe not only that they believe that not helping people that are, that are dying or poor now isn't good enough. They need to save the lives of the future trillions of humans <laughs> and they know how to do it. Right. And so again, if, if, if you feel like you'll, you know how to effectively save the lives of Trillions of hum- future humans, and you understand that you can and will justify doing anything at the current moment, and so when you merge this philosophy with what the you know political and uh oligarchic elite are obviously trying to do now it's the perfect fit because it provides this justification for doing anything in the present to save the trillions in the future um and i would also want to add because i don't i don't want to forget that mccaskill was an advisor to ftx i think it was the fund the um, future future fund up until the blow-up i mean he was Mm -hmm. he was right there until the very end and by the way i also want to mention this too because i want people to look into it This is so bizarre as well. McCaskill, as I mentioned, was texting with Elon Musk about SBF, not the other way around. Okay, so McCaskill knows. He's his handler. Right. He knows him him so well that he's texting Elon Musk, just like casually, like, hey, you know, how's your day going? By the way, SBF is a great partner to buy Twitter with you. I mean, that's what he's saying. He's like, can I connect you guys? You know, so this obscure.
0: Well, didn't Elon Musk also tweet out that uh, about McCaskill's book that this is basically his philosophy also?
1: Yes this, yes.
2: this is this book aligns most closely with my personal philosophy, I believe is what he said.
1: But, but, but there's another <laughs>
2: there's another there's another interesting nugget here between Twitter, uh, FTX, EA as well. Uh, one thing that was highlighted in the balance sheet of FTX and Alameda that's been shared um in the last few weeks is that part of their balance sheet one of the assets on their balance sheet is twitter stock and this is private twitter stock Mm. so as we know elon has has bought twitter and taken it private and there were only a few shareholders who were able to convert their public shares into private shares and it seems like ftx may have been one of those those shareholders
0: well that's interesting
1: yeah, it just goes hmm. back to how does a young philosophy professor at Oxford texting Elon Musk, um, suggesting to Sam Bankman-Fried that he go work at Jane Street, helping this network pro- providing all of the initial funding yeah. and right co- capabilities to uh, make the origin story happen. That just none of it. I mean, as Mark Cahote said, <laughs> I mean none of it adds up. And the and and again nobody nobody's really focusing on this angle as far as i can tell it's, it's, no it's, i think it's, it's a
0: very telling angle because i mean you look at this william mcaskill guy he is hundred percent sam bankman frieds handler from the time he's an undergrad to now and that's like a decade of guiding everything this guy does and this guy's being propped up like we talked about groomed for this big role of like crypto savior one of the big faces in the entire industry who's gonna lead people to what we mentioned earlier the bridge between the current financial system and cbdc at least that's how it looked, um, and this is the guy behind him—an Oxford philosophy guy. You know, I don't really buy that. And and then you know another uh, Elon Musk connection. It's a little more indirect. Um, the building at Oxford that the Center for Effective Altruism has been at for several years, I think, at least before they bought this palatial a state recently uh was called the Future for Humanity Institute uh which is funded by Elon Musk so they were in the same sharing the same office space basically and um this future for humanity Institute makes this same argument. That's basically an argument for transhumanism where they say, you know, we have to augment because AI is inevitable and it's going to take over everything. So to compete with this inevitable super AI, we have to become machines ourselves and, you know, plugs the whole transhumanist stuff. Um, so, you know, just interesting, you know, these networks, um, you know, are so close together and a lot of it's at Oxford and it's worth pointing out too, that like the Oxford, um, um, you know, has a long-standing tie to British intelligence agencies. Just throw that out there. <laughs> William McCaskill, is he just a philosophy professor? I don't know, but it doesn't really look like it. And um, uh, one thing I wanted to mention about him too, in terms of his role at the FTX Future Fund, um, I think it's the New Yorker article. It basically points out Um, that while he's at FTX, he's basically looking at, 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 with this future fund, he has a role in moving a lot of the money at that future fund uh, to other organizations that are part of this umbrella or closely tied to the Center for Effective Altruism. And as I was telling you guys before the show, um, we took a look at some of the financials, at least in the British system, uh, for the Center for Effective Altruism, and something happened in August of this year uh, where it they basically split themselves into five different or maybe six. So they just splintered off uh, in and divided themselves into much smaller companies. And William McCaskill was using different variations of his name to get different ID numbers tied to each company. So if you click on this guy's name or anyone's name, like a company's house or something like that, you're going to get you know all of the entities they're tied to. So the fact that he used different variations of his name, you click on one and only one person comes up. And then that's the only entity tied to that variation of that name. So instead of William McCaskill, it's William David McCaskill or Dr. William McCaskill or Dr. William David McCaskill, you know like all these different iterations of his name. And then the other thing that that is a red flag for me in terms of potential intelligence connections of this guy um, he is using as we mentioned earlier his grand his ex-wife's grandmother's surname. He's claimed that his surname is is Crouch that his real name is William Crouch. Uh, but at least as far as we saw, and it's, it's possible that, you know, um, maybe he wasn't included in, you know, the UK uh, databases that allow you to see like birth registration and stuff. But William Crouch didn't turn up any results for March 1987, which is the birth uh, month and year that he supplied to uh, the British government with the filings of this stuff. So it's very possible that William Crouch isn't even his actual name. And isn't it weird that he's, William MacAskill, using a last name that's not tied up with his family at all, um, and but he's supplying his former name, but it turns out his former name might not actually be his former name. Okay, so, um, and there's also nothing about his parents, from what I've seen. You can't find out much about William MacAskill's uh, parents, who presumably have the last name Crouch, if he's to be believed, but it seems like there's a lot of effort to obfuscate his lineage, that is, I mean, there's a lot of red flags around this guy, and you know, probably an even bigger red flag is that there's no interest from the media in looking into him in this movement at all, despite the fact that he's a uh, he's the handler,
1: a hundred percent. Right, and and that, and that's the thing because a lot a lot of and this is very important because the way it's being spun to the extent that it's being spun at all is that spf was some sort of um successful guy who then became a convert to effective altruism when that's completely not what happened what happened is the effective altruism he network was sought created out. yes created mm-hmm. him they they this is all this is all laid out there i'm not even, he was created by the effective altruism Network, specifically William McCaskill. And so again who 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 is this guy? You know, what what is what is going on here? And, and they even say in the Sequoia article that the 50% of Alameda's original profits were being funneled right back to the center for effective altruism. Yeah. So it's, it, it's all this money is going back and forth and it'd be very curious to see, you know, where where the stolen money ends up, right? <laughs> Yeah, If and if
0: we will find out. Anything you want to add to that, Marty?
1: No, I
2: was going to say, just in the the last few weeks, too, it seems like there's been a concerted effort to scrub information about William McCaskill from the Internet. One interesting uh, one interesting thing that happened to me personally uh, in the last few weeks is, uh, I mean, I got on to the tip of effective altruism and William McCaskill being behind it. So I was doing research trying to find uh. Podcast and interviews with him, and, and one individual did a podcast episode with him. Was Lex Friedman? And literally, the day that I found the podcast episode, uh, I was able to get access to to the episode and the audio file. But as I was listening to it, literally, uh, like the hours, the hour in which I was listening to it, Lex Friedman pulled the podcast from all his platforms and wiped the tweet, deleted the tweet, announcing the podcast episode as well. So it seems like there's
0: um, yeah an and he blocked to... you for calling it out.
1: Yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah, I, let me just throw one thing out there also, which I think is an interesting nugget that could you know be uh, useful to explore further is the um, Alameda, right, was co-founded and almost nobody knows this, but it was co-founded by SPF, right, and a person no one's ever heard of called Tara MacHowley. Um, Mm -hmm. She and and she was the CEO of the Center for Effective Altruism. Now, she she moved away from both Alameda and the the CEO position there, I think, in 2018. But isn't it interesting that Alameda was um, co-founded by the former CEO of the effective uh, Center for Effective Altruism? It's just it's just too bizarre to to uh yeah, this yeah. Okay.
2: and with Terra specifically too. Um she went on to start some fund, some crypto fund in the UK, Terra something, I believe. But if you go to her Twitter page until last week, she hadn't tweeted in four or five years. And then for some reason or another, she decided to come out of Twitter retirement after many years to distance herself from SPF and write a long thread about the fact that she did co-found Alameda, but has since left and uh, does not support SBF.
0: All right. So I think what we've established here yeah, William McCaskill is Sam Bankman-Fried's handler and has been for a long time. The Center for Effective Altruism seems to be the force behind FTX, right? Um, so when you're looking at what FTX was doing, trying to become the everything app, Uh, uh, being one of the top, uh, SBF being one of the top donors to the DNC, the Democrats this past cycle, and also the uh, offering of uh, financial services as it relates to crypto donations for Ukraine, you have the Center for Effective Altruism involved in this, apparently. It was setting up the entity that does all of this stuff. So if SBF is a front for these guys, why does the, you know, the Center for Effective Altruism, why, you know... Why is it trying to curry extensive favor with the DNC? Uh, Why is it involved in apparent money laundering in Ukraine? Why is it involved in all of this stuff? And the other angle we haven't talked about yet is a lot of this pandemic stuff. So I think it's important to point out that the EA movement, one of their other biggest uh, stars before SBF, um, was Dustin Muscovitz, who is a co-founder of Facebook. He's the co-creator of Open Philanthropy. Open Philanthropy was directly incubated by effective altruism with involvement, I believe, from William McCaskill as well. Um, but it's uh it was like a co-creation of Muscovitz and his philanthropies with this group called Give Well, who were ex hedge fund guys that create that bought into this philosophy, quote unquote, and created, you know, an, an entity. Um some sort of philanthropic quote unquote entity. And so that merged with Muscovitz's stuff and creates open philanthropy, but it's very much intimately tied to this EA network we're talking about. And those are the people that funded event 201. Yeah. The, the, you know, coronavirus simulation before COVID-19 happened. And then you have, SBF on his side, funding some weird pandemic-related things, having a weird obsession with pandemics that he describes to McAskill from the off, or I think it's to McAskill he describes it, and then uh, funding the study that poo-poos ivermectin and uses a lot of um, funny statistics and quote-unquote science to do so, among other things. Uh, Any thoughts there, guys?
2: My only thought is it's very creepy. Uh, (laughs) uh... (laughs) To be obsessed
0: with pandemics?
2: I'd be obsessed with pandemics, <laughs> and not only that, but yeah, the fact that SBF was the the main funder of a study that poo pooed would have come to be known as uh, very reliable early treatments for COVID is is a bit perplexing.
1: Okay, yeah. So, so just to add a little color on some of the stuff Whitney mentioned. Uh, first, yeah, that that study uh, with ivermectin that that said it doesn't work. <laughs> It was the Future Fund, FDX Future Fund, that that funded that. And uh, as far as I know, I don't think I think that study has not released a lot of their data, their underlying data. So that's one of the reasons it's considered sketchy. Um, some other pandemic stuff that I've noticed that I'll I'll mention is, as we discussed earlier, um, also EA adherent and uh, former Jane Street employee uh, Gabe Bankman-Fried, Sam's brother. Uh, is running an organization called Guarding Against Pandemics, which I believe was completely funded by SBF. So, you know, again, it's not just him. It's his brother who's like really obsessed with, you know, pandemics and pandemic preparedness. Um, this other guy, Salami, um, who was an FTX uh, employee, pretty high up, I believe, in the in the organization. He like was an executive, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's been propped up by a lot of people trying to trying to say that, oh, oh the donations to the Democrats don't matter because look at this guy Salami uh, giving to the GOP. But when you look into the details um, of what Salami was funding, he wasn't like giving to Donald Trump or anything. He was giving to primaries, GOP primaries. And when you look deeper... The, the primary candidates that he was supporting were the ones that were focused, hyper-focused on pandemics. Again, super weird. Wow, what is going on? And when, you, and when you see some interviews with this Salami guy, you don't see, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy that's like really worried about like pandemics, you know? So that, that's, that's bizarre as well. And then I just wanted to note um, that if you think about the COVID response, right, the philosophical underpinnings to us losing our freedoms during COVID, it goes it it again ties in perfectly with effective altruism because in effective altruism you always have to make a cold calculated decision on what's best for the most amount of people, right? Like, what's the most good you could do? And freedom or civil liberties plays zero role in that, right? That that's not part of its ethics. So, mm-hmm. if you think about the some of the things that were done, in particular, the you know, let's turn unvaccinated people into second second class citizens, or they shouldn't be able to do anything. They should get fired because they won't take an experimental uh, a vaccine or injection. That is exactly what an effective altruist would argue. Um, would he, they would argue that the, bet, the, the greatest good is done by vaccinating everybody. So everybody must do it. And if you don't, you're a bad person and need to be punished. So you know, it actually does make sense in, in, that, in that sense, because um, if you want to create and mold a society in which a few people determine um, how you should live, uh, effective altruism provides that bedrock philosophy for for that, and so you know again, it's this twisted philosophy. It's a philosophy that everyone, effectively in power, um, the oligarchy, the state, the intelligence you know agencies, they all want to push humanity into accepting this sort of philosophy. Um, so yeah.
0: So a couple of things I wanna add about the pandemic stuff. So you also have more recently revelations that FTX, or really, I guess it's Sam Bankman-Fried, is um, funding major media outlets like ProPublica and also The Intercept. And his focus in in providing those funds was to have them report more on biosecurity policy, which is a lot of this, and and pandemic preparedness, I believe. So we can assume based on how those outlets covered COVID, what type of coverage that would be and what it would not be, right? and then the other group he funded was the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, which most people probably know because they moderated Event 201. But if you're familiar with my work, they used to be the Center for Civilian Biodefense Studies. And these are the people that wrote um, Dark Winter before the anthrax attacks um, that predicted a lot of it, the aspects of the aspect uh, the, of the anthrax attacks and so on. Uh, for people that are familiar with my work on that, um, you, know, you can go read the series about it um, on unlimitedhangup.com. Um, and, you know, the other guy that's tied up with this movement. So Peter Singer and William McCaskill are two of the names. And there's a direct like mentor mentee relationship there. Toby Ord is the other guy that's thrown out as a founder of this movement. And I'm not sure exactly where he fits into the McC- with McCaskill and, and Singer, but he, um, And I think, Mike, you sent this to me. He was talking about how he collaborated with a guy named Jason Matheny. And so Jason Matheny is, uh, in this article that I was sent, is talking, he's, he's described as the CEO of Rand Corporation, which historically has been one of the spookiest military contractors and research organizations of all in the United States. But Jason Matheny also used to work for the Center for Johns Hopkins for Health Security under uh, the people that wrote the Dark Winter Exercise. And he also used to lead IARPA, which is the intelligence community's DARPA equivalent. And he's also on the National Security Commission for Artificial Intelligence, which is full of spooks and the top people in Silicon Valley that, you uh, you know, the big Silicon Valley firms who double as military and government contractors. And that connection I find really telling about, you know, these aren't just philosophers, <laughs> to say the very least. So there's definitely a very disturbing uh, network here with a particular agenda. And they have a cover story, which is they're altruistic and they know what's best for everyone better than regular people do, like we've been talking about. And so I think by in looking at FTX, you're starting to see into this network that was behind them, I, I have a feeling they're not just behind FTX, they're probably behind some other stuff. But this particular group that we're starting to see come into focus here, you know, and that we've been talking about over the course of the podcast today was really angling for a major role in the technocracy to come, or at least that the powers that be hope will come. And I think it's really, this group needs a lot more attention than they are getting, to say the very least. You know, the fact that you have like Muscovitz and open philanthropy, uh, tied up in here, which is one of the biggest donors to like biosecurity stuff in general, aside from maybe the Wellcome Trust and Gates Foundation. I mean, they're like really up there, not quite at that level, but very close to it when it comes to funding this kind of stuff. You know, there's a lot to be said. And, you know, this whole DNC Ukraine stuff before the midterms and all of that is also just uh, mind boggling. I don't know if you guys want to talk about any of those aspects before we we get to wrapping up here.
2: No, another very odd timing thing is the uh going back to sbs mother barbara and she runs a massive uh pack that that donates to uh democratic candidates and uh-huh. the timing of ftx launching and a massive donation she made uh to to the democratic party is is a bit odd i believe ftx was founded and then a month later she was able to to donate tens of millions of dollars.
1: Yeah, I would add um, just to put some color on what you were saying, Whitney. So Jason Matheny, who you mentioned, um, that was Ord, Toby Ord's friend at Oxford, or colleague and friend at Oxford. Yeah, mm-hmm. he pointed he pointed Ord in a particular direction um, to look at a project called DCP two. So yeah, again, it's interesting that all of a sudden these people, like as you mentioned, he's a spooky guy, is you know whispering in the ear of Ord at oxford um you know <laughs> so hey take a look at this you know and ward of course is one of the uh one of the, considered one of the founding you know intellectual uh leaders of ea the other thing is just uh specifically so op- this is from the vox article and just to give some detail so it says open philanthropy spent over 65 million on on these issues including seven and eight figure grants to the johns hopkins center for health security and the nuclear threat initiatives biodefense team. I think mm-hmm. that you had some thoughts on the nuclear and NTI as well, I think.
0: Yeah, they were co-founded by Ted Turner and, and Sam Nunn, who Sam Nunn is sort of one of the architects of a lot of this biosecurity legislation and he was the, the the he played the president in the Dark Winter anthrax simulation and has a lot of ties to you know the particular network that seems to have been behind the 2001 anthrax attacks, among other things. And uh, people like Margaret Hamburg, for example, who, po- who was a dark winter too and, and pops up. And she was, uh, I think, Obama's FDA commissioner. She was on this panel in 2019 with Fauci, where they talk about getting rid of regulations to ram through mRNA vaccines and stuff. Um, she was a big name at, at NTI for a while as well. I think, up until she became FDA commissioner, she might still be there, but they're a big player in, in biosecurity land to say, to say the very least. I mean, th- these are very like intelligence connected organizations, sort of where intelligence bleeds into this big pharma healthcare stuff. Cause I mean, if you look at big pharma, right, there's longstanding connections to intelligence in the military. I mean, keep in mind, right. Like a, a great example is Donald Rumsfeld, who went between stints at Secretary of Defense, being a top executive at uh, J.D. & Co., which produces aspartame, but I think was ostensibly a pharmaceutical company, and then also at Gilead, which is the producer of Remdesivir and uh, some of these and Tamiflu and some of these other, um, you know, antivirals that have been uh, played a, you know, made a lot of money off of a lot of these biosecurity scares of of the past, including bird flu and, you know, more recently the COVID nineteen stuff. So, you know, these are these are not small time players they're promoting to. And if you're, you know, uh, donating to these organizations because you think they can do the most good, I mean, if you're looking at at your track record, what they do is they advance the biosecurity state and technocracy, and they take away our rights and our civil liberties, um, or at least create policy for that to be done. And, you know, as we've talked about their particular philosophy, you know, when you follow it to the the same conclusion, these particular effective altruists we're talking about today, follow it, you end up in that same same end point. Right. So I may have misspoken. Then when when I said FTX funded the Johns Hopkins Centers for Health Security, it may have been uh, open philanthropy that did that. I'll have to go double check if FTX actually did that. So my mistake there. Uh, for not being a hundred percent on that, but they're definitely this particular network Effective altruism is funding a lot of very interesting things that seem to overlap uh, or really converge around the idea of uh, you know scientific dictatorship at the end of the day.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: All right, so uh, we're uh, coming up to you know close to two ish hours or so, so it's probably a good time to. Uh, unless there's any other aspect of the case you guys wanted to get into, uh, into. We didn't talk about Ukraine or some of the allegations there about money being funneled back to the DNC and all that, that have sort of emerged recently. Uh, but we can talk about some of our, uh, you know, conclusions, areas for further research, you know, because I'm a lot of people uh, that listen to this podcast and, and other podcasts, I presume as well, uh, that are cover similar themes or, you know, eager to look into some of this stuff, uh, because I think even Elon Musk had to say that a lot of the big stories uh, coming or big revelations about FTX have been you know made by uh, quote unquote regular people non-journalists uh, on social media and such. so uh, maybe we can go over some of those things.
2: The Twitter sleuths really really pushing pushing things forward here. Uh, yeah. I do think we should mention there is another spoken gun that really highlights some potential FTX government, Corruption.
0: All right, which yeah, is, go which for is it.
2: F- which is the fact that one of their subsidiaries was able to buy a CFTC-regulated clearinghouse. Uh, so there's uh, options trading company called Ledger X that FTX US uh, via one of their subsidiaries. I believe it was called Welshire um, Realms was able. What West, West
0: Realmshire's?
2: Yes, West Welshire's mm-hmm. was able to purchase Ledger X. Um, and again, to me, this is a smoking gun because if you understand the nature of uh, like how hard it is to act- actually get the license to become a clearinghouse in the first place, it's a bit odd that uh, FTX was able to purchase this clearinghouse because you think if the CFTC was doing proper due diligence, they would be asking for bank statements and uh, just, uh, very fundamental Financial statements that would be necessary to get the the okay to to purchase and and operate this regulated clearinghouse, um, and as we know, uh, FTX didn't even have a bank account when they when they wound up purchasing this clearinghouse. To me, that signals that there's some potential government involvement in terms of them allowing this massive fraud to to continue and to and to grow to as large as it did.
0: Yeah. We'll see if that comes up in Maxine Waters investigation into FTX. What do you think?
2: (laughs) I'm not holding my breath.
0: Yeah, I know. Um, I mean it's it, it's mental at this point. It sort of reminds me of like when they tried to put Henry Kissinger in charge of the 9/11 commission. Like you pick a person with a huge like obvious conflict of interest and in investigating stuff to like lead the investigation. <laughs> the in and, and these types of things that seems to be like exactly what happens. So, you know, to have the person who's blowing SBF kisses and uh cuddling up with him for photo ops and got like uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars directly from him. I mean, she's gonna investigate him now, All right.
1: Yeah, I All mean right. she- for for me, Whitney, yeah, I'll just um, sort of conclude with uh, with my final thoughts here. You know, uh, first, I just wanted mm-hmm. to thank you for putting this together. I've been in you know podcast retirement for over a year, and actually had no intention of of doing another one because sort of checked out um on that stuff for 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 now. But this, I felt like was so important and so undercovered in the in the angles that I felt like needed to be explored that I. Um, I was happy to come on, and, and certainly based on how this conversation well, thank, gone, you. <laughs> thank you, thank <laughs> you—based on how this conversation has gone, I feel like it's it's achieved at least for, certainly the objective that I wanted, which is, you know, to to say that this whole thing stinks um, without a doubt. I mean, it stinks from the top to the bottom. But I think it stinks so much in so many different tentacle directions that um, I wanted to focus on what I what you know what I feel like is the most important direction to focus on, which again goes back to you know, effective altruism, William McCaskill, what is going on there? What is what is that really? And how does it play a role in the future? Because this is not you know, that network is not going to go away. They are fabulously wealthy, clearly super connected, and have a dangerous. Anti freedom philosophy that will, um, if it ex- if it continues to gain traction um, amongst the movers and shakers of the world, is an absolute intellectual foundation for social credit score technocracy, as you mentioned. And that is, you know, if anything other than being a, a parent and husband is m- my number one focus in life, to <laughs> not have myself or my you know my children and um, descendants live under such a system. So, to me, I'm left with you know more questions than answers still at this point. However, I feel like the questions that I'm asking um, and the directions that I uh, encourage others to investigate um, are the right are the proper ones to do. And so, I hope that I know you have an audience of people who are super um, you know motivated uh, to to figure out the workings of the world around us and 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 have a at, <laughs> and actually have a free future for humanity. So I hope that um, we've we've put enough nuggets out there for uh, others to carry the torch forward for from here on out. And uh, just thanks again for having me be a part of this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess in terms of uh, conclusions, then I think we can, what we've kind of agreed on so far, looks like FTX was blown up early, but it's still not quite clear uh, for what purpose it was blown up early, or what we sort of got a an, an inkling of what you know FTX's original purpose seems to have been before it was blown up early. So I guess a um, a big question you know I have at the end of this was you know how are the groups that were behind FTX's and SBF's meteoric rise how have they been affected by this uh, collapse? And it seems like a, a like you know we've been talking about sort of a a week. Well, a weak point in the aftermath of this collapse is the sort of exposure of a quote-unquote philosophical movement that doesn't make a lot of sense and is a front for something else. So I definitely agree with you, Mike, that this effective altruist movement, William McCaskill and, you know, their associates and associated funds, because these guys do move a lot of money and they have a lot of different organizations around uh, and they'll probably start scrubbing it sooner than later. I mean, if Lex Friedman was willing to like uh, take all of his interviews of William McAskill down, and then block Marty Bent for pointing it out. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't. There's something they're not. Uh, they don't want people to look at, and that probably means that's the place to look at. And you have, you know, these tendrils coming out of that movement that involve. Um, major aspects of, of COVID stuff. Oh, and one thing I didn't mention that I think is important too, Jane Street with all this overlap there, um, you know, with this EA movement and whatnot, they somehow, according to the Financial Times, is one of the few firms that knew how to trade 2020 before COVID was known to most people. And, you know, the debacle of COVID and, and all the quarantines and all of that, they knew how to trade it in advance. And they made like a thousand percent Uh, increase, had like a thousand percent increase in profits between 2020 and 2019 because of that. So that's sort of suggestive. The way it's written by the Financial Times is for knowledge. And so you have the same movement sort of involved in event, event 201. It definitely raises uh some eyebrows including mine (laughs) to say the very least so i think there is definitely a deeper story here and i think you know i think most people get that but the question is what should we focus in on to try and unravel the rest of that deeper story and i think we've sort of gotten to uh big chunks of that at least today so awesome
2: (laughs) i think there's a potential that uh sbf has um giving given us a gift because it seems that uh, it, there's there's a potential that he was certainly the front man, but he was a front man that went a bit rogue uh, and got caught up in the competitive nature of the cryptocurrency space, and really allowed this this fraud to be unraveled sooner than the, the backers would have liked, because uh, it's become very apparent that much of the uh, F- or many people on the FTX team were were on stimulants and they they weren't acting uh um, the clearest minds uh and the extent of the fraud at ftx literally it's uh, something we didn't touch on they were literally taking user deposits and gambling with them um and if they were able to simply not do that uh to take their user deposits and, and burn them with bad trades uh there's a likelihood that uh, ftx and alameda would have been able to survive much longer um and so we might be able. To give a hat tip to SBF for for getting uh, for going crazy on stimulants and becoming <laughs> uh, becoming a, a big risk taker that eventually led to his his quick downfall and potentially the the downfall uh, or highlighting that there there's something going on with this effective altruism um, movement uh, and now the attention is there so we'll, we'll give a hat tip to SBF for that.
0: So last question then about SSBF then before we wrap up, you know, you have a lot of these people that are backed by the establishment involved in financial crime. We sort of, I sort of talked about a couple of the parallels with Epstein. Epstein's obviously a different case, but you also have like Elizabeth Holmes, right? Theranos, oh, Theranos, however you say it. And it's basically, you know, they have, she has like Kissinger on the board and all these like deep state quote unquote guys on the board uh, and then was recently, you know, sentenced to like eleven years for fraud and stuff. And there's been no efforts to arrest SBF or anyone else tied up with FDX. Uh, do you? What do you guys see happening there? Or do you think he could potentially even be Epstein?
2: I think it's it's extremely odd that he has not been apprehended yet. Um, so that to me signals that he's being protected to some degree, and whether or not he continues to be protected because of all the information he has access to and all the dead bodies that, uh, that he knows are associated with, um, his company and the movement behind it. I, I wouldn't be, wouldn't be surprised if something happens, but, uh, it is really telling that he has not been arrested yet. Like you mentioned earlier, Whitney, Bernie Madoff was arrested immediately. It seems that SBF is being allowed to just putz around the Bahamas without really worrying about being apprehended.
0: Yeah, well, you know, Jeffrey Epstein in the late 80s executed what was then, I think, the biggest Ponzi scheme in U.S. history at Towers Financial with Steve Hoffenberg. And his name was dropped from the case. And then he goes and starts fundraising for the Clintons. Right. So, I mean, there's people that get away with this massive fraud and then they use them again for something else if they're good enough. The question is, is SBF actually talented at financial gooblyguck and crime? Uh, like Epstein was, I'm not so. clear. I, I don't know if that's so true. He seemed he and Carolyn Ellison and some of these other people just seem like they were, you know, stand-ins.
1: Yeah, you know what? It, we it might be a gift to us that he hasn't been arrested, or none of them have. Sort of like what Marty alluded to earlier, which I completely agree with, in the sense that every day that they aren't arrested, you just have more people that are, let's say, less conspiratorial-minded, or you know, more 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 um, willing to accept the mainstream narrative of stuff. You know, it's, it'll it'll start tickling their minds even too. Like, what? Wait, what is going on here? You know, that th- there's definitely something else here. So, I mean, everything starts with someone saying to themselves, "Wait a minute, this doesn't add up. There's more stuff here. Let me let me explore that." That's how it happened for me. You know, I was actually in Arizona with my family on vacation when this whole thing went down. I was piece trying to you know ignore news as much as possible, and then just. I couldn't ignore it anymore. You know, I just like, it was so crazy. It was, as I, you know, I messaged you, Whitney, I, I said, this is the, you know, this is like the craziest rabbit hole I've seen since Epstein. You know, it reminded me of that. And I couldn't look away. So, you know, hopefully the fact that they haven't been arrested is a, is a great signal to people that, wait a minute, I probably shouldn't look away.
0: Yeah, great point. Well, hopefully people won't look away and more will come out of it. I don't think it'll come from the mainstream media. I think it'll come from independent media and, you know, Twitter slews and and people, you know, with an interest in getting to the bottom of this that aren't tied to the establishment and want to know, you know, (laughs) why does this fraud get to keep happening to people over and over again and nothing's done about it, Um, at least when they're, you know, have powerful friends. And, but I think, you know, like we've talked about today, the story is a lot deeper and potentially has ramifications for some of the biggest, you know, events over the past couple years, you know, there's a big Ukraine angle, there's a big, you know, pandemic COVID-19 side to this as well. Um, And then, you know, campaign funny money. Uh, Yeah, it's definitely not going to go away. And, hopefully you know more revelations will come out uh about some of this some of this network because you know it's going to be bigger as we've already talked about it is bigger than just ftx and spf so with that being said thanks to everyone for uh listening special thanks of course to mike and marty for joining me today um If you enjoyed this podcast, I would please uh, uh, encourage you to share this around for other people that might also be interested in this story and can help uh, us uh, perhaps collectively help us, uh, you know, get closer to the the core of what's really going on here. Um, And also uh, a huge thank you as always to the supporters of Unlimited Hangout in this podcast. It would not be possible without you. And yeah, that's it for today. Catch you all next time.